G'day, welcome to Just In Case Law. In this episode, we're covering a case that involves end-of-life medical decision-making and treatment and advanced care planning. If this is something that might be difficult for you to listen to or traumatic, please feel free to skip this episode. Mr A was a patient in a hospital conducted by the Hunter and New England Area Health Service. He had been admitted to the emergency department suffering from septic shock and respiratory failure and showing a decreased level of consciousness. He was transferred to the intensive care unit the following day. Although all appropriate treatment had been given to Mr A, his condition deteriorated and he developed renal failure. Fourteen days later, Mr A was being kept alive by mechanical ventilation and kidney dialysis. It was at that time that the hospital became aware of a document apparently prepared by Mr A a year earlier in which he indicated that he would refuse dialysis. In those circumstances, the hospital commenced these proceedings, seeking firstly a declaration that the document was a valid advance care directive. They had to make sure it was a valid document first, and secondly, that they would be justified in complying with Mr A's wishes to not receive dialysis. This case was concerned with the principle that a capable adult has the right to refuse medical treatment. The judge emphasised that in this matter they were not concerned with notions relating to the right to die, even if that was the likely consequence of Mr A's refusal of medical treatment. The common law recognises two relevant, but in some cases conflicting, interests. On one hand, is a competent adult's right of autonomy or self-determination, the right to control his or her own body and the treatment it receives. And on the other hand, the interest of the state in preserving and protecting the lives and health of its citizens. In the American case of Schoendorf v. Society of New York Hospital, 1914, it was stated that, quote, every human being of adult years and sound mind has a right to determine what shall be done with his own body, end quote. In the 1990 decision of Mallet versus Shulman, it was said, quote, a competent adult is generally entitled to reject a specific treatment or all treatment, or to select an alternative form of treatment, even if the decision may entail risk as serious as death, and may appear mistaken in the eyes of the medical profession or of the community. It is the patient who has the final say on whether to undergo the treatment. End quote. So clearly there will be situations where the adult's right of self-determination will conflict with the social and medical obligation to preserve life. Lord Donaldson of Lymington in England stated that, at least in cases where there were no other factors tipping the balance one way or the other, the individual patient's right was paramount. However, if there was any doubt as to the patient's wishes, quote, that doubt falls to be resolved in favour of the preservation of life, end quote. The case of Mallet, which I mentioned earlier, was a case that was before the Supreme Court of Ontario, Canada, in 1990. 
In that case, Miss Mallet was seriously injured in a car accident and rushed to hospital where she was seen by Dr. Shulman. The doctor determined that she needed blood transfusions to save her life and perform those. But Miss Mallet was a Jehovah's Witness. She carried with her a card stating her adherence to that faith and stating in no uncertain terms that, whilst understanding the implications of her decision, she did not wish blood or blood products to be administered to her under any circumstances. Dr. Shulman was aware of this when he did the blood transfusions. Miss Mallet sued, alleging that the blood transfusions amounted to negligence, assault and battery, and religious discrimination. The trial court at first instance found that the Jehovah's Witness card validly restricted what treatment could be given to Miss Mallet, and that Dr. Shulman had knowingly contravened that valid restriction. The decision was appealed, and the Court of Appeal held that Dr. Shulman, who had expressed notice of the terms of that card, was not entitled to disregard it. Justice Robbins recognised that the freedom of competent adults to make decisions about their medical care included the right to, quote, make choices that accord with their own values, regardless of how unwise or foolish those choices may appear to others, end quote. Further, he found that the right to refuse medical treatment did not depreciate the value of life, stating that, quote, individual free choice and self-determination are themselves fundamental constituents of life. To deny individuals freedom of choice with respect to their health care can only lessen and not enhance the value of life, end quote. The New South Wales Supreme Court recognised that it is in general clear that whenever there is a conflict between a capable adult's exercise of the right of self-determination and the state's interest in preserving life, the right of the individual must prevail. But there are, of course, some factors that need to be considered. And the first is capacity. The capacity to refuse treatment. The starting point is that it is presumed that all adults have capacity to consent to or refuse medical treatment. That is the starting point. But that position can be rebutted if a person is able to show that the adult in question lacked capacity to make those decisions. Capacity in this context is compared to a scale, with full capacity at one end and nil capacity at the other, and in between are all levels of capacity. A person can be at any point on that scale, but not only that, they can be at different points depending on what decision has to be made. They might have full capacity to decide what to eat for breakfast, but also have nil capacity to understand and refuse consent to a proposed medical procedure. Keep that in mind, capacity is a scale, and where you sit on the scale will depend on the type of decision to be made. When there is a concern that a person does not have capacity to refuse medical treatment, they will be looking for some impairment or disturbance of mental functioning that renders the person incapable of making the decision. That will be the case if it can be shown that the person is unable to comprehend and retain the information, which is material to the decision, in particular as to the consequences of the decision. Or, 
is unable to use and weigh the information as part of the process of making the decision. So a person may be able to hear the information, take it in, regurgitate it, but they might not be able to weigh it up against other factors and rationally use that information to make a decision. The second factor we're going to look at is vitiation of consent. An apparent consent or refusal of consent may be ineffective by a number of reasons. So a person has consented to treatment or refused consent to treatment, but there are reasons why that shouldn't be listened to. Firstly, the individual concerned may not have capacity to give or refuse consent, as we've covered. Secondly, even if the individual did have capacity, the decision may have been obtained by undue influence or some other vitiating factors, such as a decision based made on incorrect information or an incorrect assumption. So to give some examples, if it is made under undue influence, where it could be that there's another party involved who is so influential on the patient that you can tell the patient is agreeing or not agreeing, but it's not really what they want. They're just going along with what this more dominant person is wanting them to do. Or it could be based on incorrect information. So if the patient refuses treatment and they say the reason for the refusal, but that reason is incorrect, or you can see that there's a misunderstanding. In that case, it wouldn't be right not to question the decision being made. Thirdly, there is the apparent consent or refusal that may not extend to a particular situation. So they may have consented to treatment in a particular situation, but now we're in a different situation. Does that consent carry over? Or does that lack of consent carry over? If they've said, no, I don't want treatment if this happens, but we're in a situation slightly different. It, d- it does the same denial of medical treatment, does that apply? And this is one of the arguments that Dr. Shulman put forward in, in the case of Mallet. Fourthly, the terms of the consent or refusal may be ambiguous or uncertain. So they may have presented their instructions, but it might be in such a way that you're not really sure what they meant. In the case of Mr. A., It was argued that he clearly expressed advanced refusal of specified medical treatment, but that this should be held to be ineffective because at the time he made the statement, he was not given adequate information as to the benefits of the treatment and the dangers consequent upon refusal. But Justice McDougall did not agree with that, stating, quote, I have said, A valid refusal may be based upon religious, social or moral grounds, or indeed upon no apparent rational grounds, and is entitled to respect regardless. He compared the situation to where a person has consented to medical treatment in a situation where there was the opportunity for medical information and explanation to be given, but it was not. In that situation, he stated, there would be no doubt that the consent was corrupted. The third factor we're going to look at is the emergency principle. So you've probably already thought of this one. Where it is not practical for a medical practitioner to obtain consent, 
and where the patient's life is in danger if appropriate treatment is not given. Then treatment may be administered without consent. This is justified by what is sometimes referred to as the emergency principle or principle of necessity. However, that principle does not apply where the proposed treatment is contrary to the known wishes of the patient. So what approach should the court take? In this case, it was stated that if there is any real doubt as to the sufficiency of an advanced refusal of medical treatment, the court should undertake a careful analysis, obviously. But the analysis should start by respecting that a competent individual's right to self-determination prevails over the state's interest in the preservation of life, even though the individual's exercise of that right may result in his or her death. Also, if a medical practitioner is to act on doubts as to the validity of an advanced refusal of medical treatment, those doubts must be rationally founded. It cannot be that doctors can challenge anyone's advanced care directive just because they do not agree with it. Let us summarise those principles. Number one, except in the case of an emergency where it is not practical to obtain consent, it is at common law a battery to administer medical treatment to a person without that person's consent. Number two, consent may be expressed or in some cases implied and whether a person consents to medical treatment is a question of fact in each case. Number three, consent to medical treatment may be given by the person concerned if that person is a capable adult or by the person's spouse, carer or guardian under an instrument of appointment of enduring guardian. Which is one of the reasons why it is important to appoint an enduring guardian, but then also let that guardian know what medical decisions you would like them to make. Number four, a person may make an advanced care directive, which is a statement that the person does not wish to receive medical treatment or medical treatment of specific kinds. If an advanced care directive is made by a capable adult and is clear and unambiguous and extends to the situation at hand, it must be respected. It would be a battery to administer medical treatment to the person of a kind prohibited by the advanced care directive. And if you are in New South Wales, the New South Wales Health website has a template advanced care directive that you can complete and it includes a brochure that explains what you're doing. So you can go on there now and uh, prepare your own advanced care directive. It generally needs to be witnessed by a doctor or solicitor or both just to provide witness evidence that you were the person who signed it and you understood it at the time. Number five. If there is genuine and reasonable doubt as to the validity of an advanced care directive, or as to whether it applies in the situation at hand, a hospital or medical practitioner should apply promptly to the court for its aid. Number six. It is not necessary for an advanced care directive that the person giving it should have been informed of the consequences of deciding in advance to refuse specified kinds of medical treatment. Nor does it matter that the person's decision is based on religious, social or moral grounds rather than upon some balancing of risk and benefit. And number seven, 
what appears to be a valid consent given by a capable adult may be ineffective if it does not represent the independent exercise of person's volition. If by some reason the person's will has been overborne or the decision is the result of undue influence or some other vitiating circumstances like those we mentioned earlier. Returning to Mr A. I should mention that in these court proceedings there needed to be a person advocating for Mr A. Mr A had, when he had had capacity, he had signed an appointment of enduring guardian in which he appointed his friends Mr T and Mr L as his guardians, giving them the power to decide what health care he should receive and to consent to treatment on his behalf. And I should mention that when I say Mr A, Mr T and Mr L, obviously the names have been redacted and they're just referred to by their initials in this judgment to preserve their privacy. When Mr. A had organised and signed his enduring guardian appointment, he saw a solicitor who had a number of clients who were Jehovah's Witness. And it was this solicitor's practice to explain to his clients the risk of refusal of blood transfusion. He also then included a special clause in the enduring guardian document that said, Quote, I require that each of my enduring guardians exercise his or her functions subject to the following directions. As one of Jehovah's Witnesses, I direct my guardian to refuse consent for a transfusion of whole blood, red cells, white cells, platelets or blood plasma to be given to me under any circumstances, even if healthcare providers believe that such are necessary to preserve my life or even if any of my family, my relatives or my friends disagrees with my considered and non-negotiable decision. I also direct my guardian to refuse any pre-donation and storage of my blood for later infusion under any circumstances. End quote. The Congregation of Jehovah's Witnesses, of which Mr A was a member, had a practice of making documents available to members, which were called Worksheet at 1 and Worksheet 2, by which those members could indicate their attitude to various forms of medical treatment specified in the worksheets. Mr A had completed these documents in August 2008. By Worksheet 1, Mr A indicated that he would refuse five specified forms of medical treatment, which included dialysis. The worksheet even included an explanation of what dialysis was, that it, quote, functions as an organ. In hemodialysis, blood circulates through a machine that filters and cleans it before returning it to the patient, end quote. One of the guardians appointed, Mr. T, told the court that in his opinion, Mr. A was perfectly capable of making up his own mind when he did that document, and when he was admitted to hospital. Mr. T said that Mr. A, quote, was a simple man with an uncomplicated way of living. However, he was adamant about the things he didn't want, end quote. Considering the evidence as a whole, Justice Madougal was satisfied that the worksheets did represent Mr. A's considered views and that dialysis was indeed one of the things that Mr. A didn't want. 
McDougall stated that the advance refusal of dialysis represented Mr A's exercise of his right of self-determination, his right to decide what should be done to his own body. Further, there was nothing in the evidence to suggest that his expression of intent was vitiated in any way. On the contrary, it seemed clear that it was his own voluntary decision. Therefore, in the views of the court, the intention expressed was one to which the hospital was required to give effect. In this case, where the hospital gave treatment and found out about the advanced care directive later, the court said that in circumstances where Mr A was unable to give instructions, because he was unable to communicate, the hospital acted rightly in taking steps to preserve his life, whilst seeking the court's decision. The hospital was entitled to the declarations it sought. Firstly, that the advanced care directive was valid. And secondly, that they would be justified in stopping dialysis. The end result, what we have been skirting around to a certain extent. Quote, On the basis of the medical evidence, I accept that the result of withdrawal of dialysis will be to hasten Mr A's death. That is a consequence of the decision that he made, as signified in Worksheet 2. What my orders did was recognise his right to make that decision. As I said towards the outset of these reasons, it is no recognition of a right to die. End quote. The judge in this case was careful to differentiate between the right to die and the right to refuse medical treatment. And you can see how it's a fine line. But the right to refuse medical treatment might not result in death. But it remains what it is, a right of self-autonomy and determination. And if someone breaches that right, it may constitute an assault on the person, even if that assault saves their life. I realise that this can be a heavily contested decision, Some people may have a differing opinion on the right to self-autonomy or on the obligation to preserve life. Rather than focus on that side of the case, I want to focus instead on what it means for you personally. Have you appointed an enduring guardian to make medical decisions for you if you are ever unable to? Have you prepared an advanced care directive that would help that person make end-of-life decisions? something that can be very traumatic for the decision maker. Perhaps you want to make it easier for them by putting your own wishes in writing. Are you someone's appointed guardian? In which case do you know what decisions they would want you to make? Might it make your life easier if you suggested to them to do an advanced care directive? Or even more so, is there someone in your life who you feel you may be called upon to make medical decisions for but you were not appointed as their guardian, in which case it would be incredibly difficult for you to step in and make those decisions as needed. Executing an appointment of enduring guardian and an advanced care directive can seem like a bit of a hassle, can seem like it's not important, but when they're needed, they are, they are absolutely vital. And As I say to all of my clients, it is better to have them and never need them than to not have them. So I definitely recommend that anyone consider whether they have these documents in place and if not, consider doing them. 
From an estate planning solicitor, this is not a surprising or dramatic recommendation. Any wills and estate solicitor worth their salt would be making this same recommendation. But it doesn't mean that it's not serious. And if you don't believe me, well, this case is an example of where having the documents in place ensured that Mr A's wishes were upheld. That's it for this episode. If you'd like to give any feedback or make recommendations or just share your thoughts, feel free to jump onto our Facebook page. It is the Just In Case Law podcast Facebook page. Happy to have anyone join and share their ideas, make recommendations, maybe discuss the cases we cover. I hope you found this case interesting and I hope you'll join me for my next episode. Bye.